the CIA. Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> okay, Revelation chapter 12. Now, this is what is known as the theological center of this book. And by theological center, that means these next couple chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, up in the middle of 14, uh, gives us the theological reasons for the things that are happening in the book of Revelation. It doesn't move our story along chronologically, but it explains why the church is going to be persecuted and why God is going to judge uh, the Roman Empire. So these are exciting chapters and, in a sense, give you the behind-the-scene reasons why things are happening the way they are. Now, chapter 12 really should be read in its fullness, but we're only going to be able to cover uh, 12 verses today, so we'll have to pick up from that point on next week. Now, today we're going to see two pictures, okay? Two pictures, two visions that John the Revelator has. And the first is a vision of heavenly signs, and that's verses 1 through 6, heavenly signs. And the second picture is of a holy war holy war, and that's verses 7 through 12. Okay? So let's look at the heavenly signs. And we'll pick up at chapter 12 and verse 1. This is sign number 1 okay, that John sees. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. Notice the location. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland or a crown of twelve stars. Now who is this symbolic woman? Because this is a symbol, remember? This is a vision. It represents something. What does this woman who has a moon under her feet, stars in her, uh, as a crown, clothed in dazzling array, what is her identity? What does she represent? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says she represents Mary. The Christian Science Church says she represents Mary. Baker, Eddie. Uh, and I think that that's probably not quite right. If you were to ask a reader from Rome, now we're talking about a pagan Roman reader, they would have said, we know who this is. This is the goddess Roma, after which Rome is named, who is the queen of heaven. This represents her as having stars and moon, she's controlling all of that, and she controls the affairs of the earth. She's a divine figure, and she is the patroness of the Roman Empire. All the blessings that Rome has is because of this woman, Roma. Now, that tells us something. That tells us that John is using some imagery that Roman citizens would be aware of, but what he's going to do is he's going to turn it around, and he's going to give this woman a different identity. Now, there's a reason for that, and uh, we're going to talk about that because in, in a few moments, because if a Roman citizen read this, they'd say, Roma! Goddess Roma! And, but if Christians read that, they would identify this woman as Israel. Now, the reason we think this is Israel, because John is taking three things that are mentioned in, in uh, Genesis 37 sun, moon, and stars. And he's putting those together. And these three symbols represent Israel. Because remember when Joseph had his dream. And uh, he wakes up and he tells his mother and his father and his brothers, 
his dream. And he said, in my dream, I saw the sun bow down to me. And I saw the moon bow down to me. And I saw the twelve stars bow down to me. And it was immediately interpreted. The father said, you mean I'm going to bow down to you? The sun. Your mother's going to bow down to you? The moon. And your twelve brothers are going to bow down to you? And he said, oh yeah. So, uh, in a sense, this represents that Joseph is going to become the leader of the nation of Israel. And does that happen to him? Sure does. Remember how he goes and becomes vice president of Egypt and then his brothers have to come and bow down to him and his father bows down to him and he becomes the ruler of this nation. So, many commentators believe that this woman, in a sense, represents uh, Israel and the twelve stars would represent the twelve sons of the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is all cryptic language. Now look at the condition of this woman in verse 2. It says, Then being with child, she, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And this is another description of Israel in the Old Testament. Many times when Israel is in bondage, the Old Testament describes her as a woman in travail or labor seeking to give birth. Now, when you say that a woman's in labor or travail, that means she's in a lot of pain. And many times Israel finds herself in bondage to other countries, other empires, and she's in pain. And she cries out to be delivered. Uh, that's what she did when she was in Egypt. That's what she did when she was in Babylon. And that's the language that's used. Israel is a woman with child crying out to be delivered. Now, in our story, Israel again is in bondage. Rome has come into Palestine and has taken over this region in 63 B.C. And it wasn't a pretty sight when they took it over. And Israel is now in bondage and guess what she does? She is like a woman in labor and she's crying out for the birth of a redeemer who will Deliver her from this bondage, just as they did in Egypt. So that's the first sign, a heavenly sign. Now look at the second sign. Verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. So now, this next vision is that of a dragon. Now, this is pretty easy to identify. The other one is not so easy. This is easy to identify. Because in verse 9, if you just jump ahead for a second, the dragon is identified. So the great dragon was cast out. The, old, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. So here we discover that the dragon... Now, in his vision, he sees a literal dragon. Fiery red dragon, which means fire comes out of its mouth. That's how it destroys. That's how dragons destroy. But dragons are mythological, aren't they? They're like unicorns. Not real. But that's what he sees. But what does it represent? What does it represent? The devil. Satan. The serpent. 
the one who's been God's enemy all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent speaks to Eve and causes the fall. So now this dragon, this devil, is described as fiery red, which means fire comes out of its mouth. It's not just a red dragon, but it destroys with its mouth. And then look what it says. He had seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. What in the world is all this? Well, this is another one that's pretty easy to discover because if you look at chapter 17 of Revelation, we see these same things. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in chapter 17 because we'll deal with that when we get there. But I want to at least read the passage to you. I, in chapter 17... John has another vision, and he sees a woman, you see that in verse 3, sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemies, having seven heads and seven horns. Now here he sees another woman. Now this isn't the woman that he saw back in the other chapter. This is another woman, and this is the Roman Empire. She's described as a drunken prostitute. She's riding this beast that has these seven heads and ten horns, which we just saw back in chapter 12. Verse 7 says, The angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Uh, probably a reference to the dragon, to Satan. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not in the yet. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And that is the Roman Empire. Rome, the city of Rome was known as the city of seven hills. So we see that this dragon back in chapter 12 is controlling, in a sense, the, the Roman Empire. It's the power behind the Roman Empire. Look at verse 10. There are seven kings. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. One's alive now. The other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is of the seven, and is going into perdition. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So, without going into all the detail, when he describes back in chapter 12 that this dragon, who's the devil, has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, what he's describing is this is the power behind the Roman Empire. This is the power behind the, the world powers. Satan. And he controls empires. And that's what he's describing right here. So let's go back there to chapter 12. And look at verse, middle verse 4. Middle verse 4. Look at his activity. And the dragon stood before Israel, the woman, who was ready to give birth. And here's what he was going to do. He was standing there to devour her child as soon as it was born. In fact, I skipped the place, didn't I? Yeah, you didn't tell me again. So let's go back to the beginning of verse 4, before I finish up verse 4. Now look at this dragon. His, 
His tail, it's the beginning of verse 4, His tail drew a, thousand, a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to earth. So, we have this dragon, heavenly dragon, with these horns, and then verse 4, His tail drew, pulled, a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Now, what are the stars? Real stars? Angels, which is the typical answer, or something else? Well, if I look at the context, the immediate context, what are the stars? Do you see stars mentioned anywhere else in this passage? Yes, you do. You see it in verse 1, don't you? Twelve stars, which represent God's people. Twelve tribes, God's people. So here, and this is a, a heavenly scene in verse 1. So here it says, his tail, this dragon's tail. Now you know that Satan doesn't have a tail like a dragon. I think you know that. He doesn't wear a red suit. But he drew a third of the stars. Now stars in this context represents the people of God. And I think it does in this context. I think it represents the people of God. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how people are called stars? Movie stars, athletes who are stars, right? Person's a rising star on the political scene. I think what he does is he, in a sense, brings down a third of God's people, the remnant of believing Jews. Now, how many does he bring down? A third. Have you seen that number before? Yeah, if you've been with us every week, you've seen that number. Remember when we talked about the judgments where people were killed? How many people were killed? A third. And what do we say about that? That means there's going to be persecution. That means there's going to be martyrdom. But guess what? It's not the majority of the people who are going to be killed. It's not all the people, but it's going to be a significant amount. There are going to be people who are martyred. And so he uses the numerical value of a third. Not literally a third. But there are going to be people who are martyred. And Satan is responsible for that. So these people that he sees in verse 1, in a sense, are going to be martyred. So you're always hunting for what's going on behind the symbols. Okay? This is exactly the same thing it says in Daniel. Daniel describes an empire that comes and Satan and the dragon and the beast and you know that comes against the people of God. So I think what's happening is that Satan goes out to destroy God's people. Uh, probably happened, uh, you know, after Rome took over, a lot of Jews were killed, a lot of Messianic people who were looking for the Messiah were killed. Uh, not not all of them, but it was a time of persecution. Now look at the middle of verse four. Now we'll go to what I was reading before. And the dragon stood before the woman. That would be Israel, and probably believing Israel, probably Messianic Jews, who was ready to give birth to devour her child who was soon to be born. Do you remember anything like that ever happening? Where when Israel was ready to bring forth the Messiah and he was going to be born, someone tried to kill him. Was there anybody who tried to do that? Herod tried to do that. Remember when Moses was born. Who else tried to kill him? Pharaoh tried to kill him. See, so God has deliverers, and Satan is trying to kill him. Oh, I thought it was Pharaoh that tried to kill Moses. 
I thought it was Herod who tried to kill Moses. Here it says it's what? It's Satan. It's the devil. He's behind it all. He's a murderer from the beginning. See? He's the one that has Cain kill Abel. He's the one that's behind all of this. So, she's ready to bring forth the child, and there's the devil, his representatives on earth, going to kill this child. Verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He was to shepherd the nations. God's new ruler. This is a anticipation of the Messiah's rule on earth. So she has the child. Which one? The Messiah. The one who's going to rule the entire earth. So he is now born. And her child was what? Caught up to God and his throne. Now, this is very important. Remember I told you something. I said this book is not trying to take the story along chronologically. There's no necessarily time element here. He's just giving you little pictures of events that took place in the past. Satan tried to destroy the son. Didn't work. He tried to destroy Christ throughout his ministry, didn't he? After he became an adult, he tried to have him killed. People tried to throw him over a precipice. Satan said, jump on down off the temple. Oh, God will let his angels catch you. No, he wanted to kill Jesus. Judas denies Jesus. Betrays him with a kiss. Rome and Israel are going to kill Jesus. And they're going to try to destroy him, but it says this. The child was caught up to God in his throne. Now, just because the child's caught up right after the birth in verse 5 doesn't mean there's not a gap there, because there is. When is Jesus caught up into heaven? What is that called? That's resurrection ascension. Jesus ascends into heaven. So this is so he talks about the birth, the beginning of Jesus' life, and his ascension, the end of Jesus' earthly life. And he doesn't fill in all the gaps in between. He's born, and guess what? He ascends where he cannot be devoured. Now, something happened before he ascended. He's put to death, wasn't he? Hey, I got him! I finally killed him! I devoured him. No. What happened three days later? God raised him from the dead, and Satan didn't get him. He thought he had him, but he didn't have him. So he ascended into heaven, it says, in verse 5. To what? To God and His throne. So Christ is now ruling. Right now He's ruling. Do you see that? He goes to the throne of God. So God raised Him from the dead, and right now, from God's throne, Christ rules. Somehow He rules the earth. In some way. What way? How does Christ, who's in heaven have any influence over the earth now. He does it through the church. The church is Christ's present manifestation of the kingdom. We are His representatives on earth. This is the kingdom localized. And when we invite others to join us and pledge their allegiance to King Jesus, something happens. 
Satan's kingdom is diminished because we invite somebody that's given their allegiance to this world system, and we invite them to give their allegiance over to Christ. And when we do that, Satan's kingdom gets a minus one. Christ's kingdom gets a plus one. And as we invite people to pledge their allegiance to Christ, Satan's kingdom gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and Christ's kingdom gets wider and wider and wider and wider on earth. So, even though things started off small, with Jesus and 12 apostles and one a defect, a defector, guess what's happened? Is his kingdom bigger today than it was then? Yes, it is. And his influence is larger. One day he's going to come back. See? And he's going to literally set foot again on the earth, and he's going to run, rule the whole world with that rod of iron, shepherd that world with the rod of iron. So we have an already kingdom. It's already here in some way through the church. But the kingdom is not here in its fullness. When that happens, all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of God and his Christ. And then verse 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness. After the sun's caught up, the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her their 1,260 days, three and a half years. Now, what in the world is going on? If this is in the context of John's churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, it makes a lot of sense. But most people don't do that. They put it way in the future. They say, oh, this is like three and a half years of tribulation or something. That wouldn't make any sense to John's congregation. Ah, here's what I think. The woman, where does she flee? Into the wilderness. Now, this is believing saints, believing Jews. Flees into the wilderness. This is a picture of a second exodus. Pharaoh tried to kill their leader, Moses. He couldn't kill their leader. Moses grows up to lead the children of Israel. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses to let his people go. And Pharaoh kills a lot of the Israelites. And so what does God do? God opens up the Red Sea and the Jews flee into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. Now, notice what it says when this other woman, this new Israel in a sense, these believing Jews of John's day, flee into the wilderness. A place was prepared for her that she should be fed. They should feed her. Who fed Israel in the wilderness? God fed Israel in the wilderness. Who will feed Israel in the wilderness during this period of time? God and Jesus feed Israel in the wilderness during this period of time. Now, when did this happen? Where's the Christian counterpart? Where's the second exodus? Do we know anything about it? Well, there's definitely an, an event that describes this, what you see in verse 6. In 66 AD, Israel declares a war on Rome. And this is called the Jewish War. Josephus has a whole book about it. It's called the Jewish War. And they declare a war on Rome. And when they do, Rome 
doesn't take it sitting down. And you know the story. They, uh, they are going to eventually destroy the temple, aren't they? They destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In what year is that? 70 AD. From 66 to 70 AD was three and a half years. From the time the war started to the destruction of Israel in 70 AD was three and a half years. <coughs> when the Jews declared war, Rome surrounded Israel with its troops. Do you know what Jesus said? When you see Israel surrounded by armies, said this in Luke 21 to his disciples, when you see Israel surrounded by armies, he said, anybody know what he said to do? Flee! Get out of there! Because Israel's going to be destroyed, the temple's going to be destroyed. And we know from historical records, we know from Eusebius, the church historian, that in 66, the middle of the year of 66 AD, when the Jewish war began and the Roman armies began to surround Jerusalem, the believing Jews, you know what they did? They ran for the hills. <laughs> they ran for the hills. They got out of there. And they did not fight in that war. And the Jews were literally decimated. And that was the cause of the break between Messianic Jews, Christian Jews, and non-Messianic Jews. The nation of Israel said to the Messianic believers, you didn't stand with us in this war. You escaped and you were safe for three and a half years. You didn't stand with us. That was the break between Messianic Judaism and regular Judaism. And from that day, regular Judaism has opposed Christianity. Now that fits right in with this scenario, and I can't prove that that's the scenario, but it makes a lot of sense. And so John is trying to explain theologically, why is it that you churches made up of Jewish believers at Smyrna and you know, Philadelphia and Thyatira, why is it that you're going to be persecuted by Jews? your friends and relatives and just regular old Jews, why are they going to persecute you along with Rome? And here's the reason. It's because about 20 years ago, John's writing in 95, 20, 30 years ago, this event was the split. And now Satan is even using regular Israel to fight against Christianity. So we have this first picture here. Uh, in verses 1 through 6. Now we have a second picture. And the second picture is a very interesting one. You can see how it can get complicated. But once you understand the history, it starts making sense. When you don't understand the history, you know what you start doing? Putting everything in the future and speculating. And you know what your chances of getting it right is at that point? Very low. Very low. I can apply this to the day. I can say even today. There's persecution, isn't there? Against Christians. I don't know too many Jewish congregations around the world that say, Hey, we love Christians. Come on in. Come on in. No, if you try to go into a Jewish neighborhood and share the gospel, what will happen? You'll be persecuted. And, just like the Roman Empire, most nations are against Christians. You stand up and speak to the President of the United States and tell him what's required of him by God, you think he's going to like that? 
In fact, if you speak again about politics from the pulpit, we'll rip your IRS status away from you. They're not your friends. Only when you do what they want you to do. See, so you can apply these. You can see how all this fits together even for today. That's the application part of it. Now let's look at the second picture, the defeat of Satan. First, there's a heavenly defeat, verses 7 through 9. Look what it says. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. We know that's Satan. The dragon and his angels fought. So now we're introduced to a fourth personality. We're introduced to Michael, who's called here an archangel, one of God's leading angels. But they, Satan and his angels, did not prevail nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon, that's Satan, the serpent, the old death called the devil, Satan, who deceives the world, was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we have Satan's defeat in heaven. Now, so what you have, in, in a sense, is this. The child is snatched up into heaven, and Satan is expelled from heaven. See, that's what John's trying to get you to see. Now, Satan, for thousands of years, has had access to planet Earth. We know that he was in the Garden with Eve. But he also had access to heaven. Even though he had become a sinner, in a sense, and he rebelled against God, he still had some access into God's presence where he could accuse the brethren before God. But now something's happened. He's now cast down, and this casting down of Satan is different. This is what we call an eschatological casting down. That means an end-time casting down. He's cast down once and for all, and he will never gain access into heaven again, even to stand in God's presence as he had done prior to that. So for Satan, this casting down is, a, is the beginning of the end. And so in a sense, what's happened is that Jesus ascends into heaven. He looks at Michael and says, get rid of that bum. Throw that bum out. So Michael and his angels basically take on the devil and his angels and they throw the bum out. So that's what's going on here. Now, Look at the... Something else is happening here. And this is where I wanted to just spend a second and try to explain something to you. See if you can, if you can grasp this. If I were in a class of college students, master's degree students, we'd probably have to sit down and talk about this for about an hour. So I'm going to try to give it to you in a minute and a half. <laughs> Remember I told you the book of Revelation was written in code. It's written in code for a reason. One of the reasons was if it fell into the wrong hands, like the Roman Empire, and they read it, they wouldn't know what they were reading. In other words, if John wrote, and Rome's trying to kill us, and all this, and he just gave the names, you know, and the emperor, he named the emperor by name, they'd see this, they'd read this, and say, oh, those Christians are against us. They are, they are, uh, uh, they're subversive. We need to put an end to them really quick. And so what he does, he writes everything in code. Now, Rome had a mythology. Rome believed in all kinds of myths and gods and all these kinds of things. The chief god was Zeus or Jupiter. And they had a story. And their story was 
that the head god, Zeus or Jupiter, married a woman named Leto, a woman from Earth. And she bore a son. It would have been a virgin birth. Apollo. You ever hear the god Apollo? She bore a son, Apollo. And when he was born, Python, a snake, tried to devour her son, Apollo. But she was able to get him away. <laughs> and then when Apollo grew up and became a man, he slew Python. Now, that's basically what you see here. You see a uh, virgin birth, God producing through Israel a son who Satan tries to devour, but he can't devour. And then Christ basically defeats Satan. So, if, they, if you just look at the words there, if you just look at the words, nothing's revealed. It's all symbolic language. So if this fell into the hands of a Roman citizen, and they read that story, guess what they would think they were reading? The story of mythology, the story of Zeus and Leto and Apollo and Python. They'd say, oh, this is a book telling our mystery, our myths. In reality, it's all coded, and he's saying, what John does is he takes that story and he infuses it with all Christian figures. The true story. A true story. Not a mythological story. So that's what he does. Now look at the results or the outcome of all this in verse 10. Uh, by the way, that's what's called a hidden transcript. Okay, a hidden transcript. In other words, there is a transcript within a transcript. It's hidden. It's, uh, it's to be read by Christians when they get off in, the, in their private little worship service around the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, and one of the people in the service gets up and reads this, they'll, they'll understand that it's Jesus, and it's God, and it's Satan, and it's you know Israel, the woman is Israel, and they'll understand all of this. They'll understand who Rome is in here. But if it fell into the hands of a Roman citizen, they read it, they'd say, oh, these people must be reading about this mythological story. That's called a hidden transcript. And it's throughout the entire scripture. That's why later on, Rome will be called Babylon. John sees Babylon. Babylon? Babylon's not even around. Babylon was defeated years ago by Persia. Oh, Babylon. No, Babylon in this story is Rome. So you need to understand that's called hidden transcript. Okay? So let's look at the outcome of all that. If you're still with me, I'm proud of you. Now, look at it. If you're not, I'm a beta teacher. I'm sorry. Okay, verse 10. Then I heard a voice, because Satan's cast out once and for all in a, in a final way. He's cast to earth, and this is now he's limited to earth. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Already. Already. It's here in some way. Salvation's here in its fullness? No. One day we're going to be resurrected and we're going to inherit the earth. Not that kind, but it's here already. And the kingdom is here already in some way. So they burst into praise and they make this proclamation. Now why do we know that it's here already? Look in the middle of verse 10. Here's the reason. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has what? 
been cast out. Been cast out. So we know that the salvation has been accomplished. When Christ died on the cross, he defeated Satan once and for all. He said, judgment has come upon the world. The ruler of this world has been cast out. So with Christ's death on the cross, Satan is defeated in a very significant end time way, never to make, never to be in a position that he was before. And Christ is taking people, snatching people from his kingdom, and bringing them over into his kingdom. And Satan can't do that much about it. He can fight, and he is. So here you go all the way back to Genesis and the seed of the woman, the child that's born from the woman, basically crushes the head of the serpent. And Satan's defeated. So this all fits in with this big story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So that was his heavenly defeat. He's cast down. Now look at his earthly defeat. Verse 11. And they, that's God's people, overcame him. That's the devil. How do we overcome the devil? By three ways. Number one, by the blood of the Lamb. When Christ defeated Satan, we defeated Satan. We get in on his victory. By the blood of the Lamb. Satan thought he had defeated Christ. But Christ stood up again. Okay. Number two, we defeat Satan by the word of their testimony. How was John's people in the seven churches to defeat Satan? By holding to the word of their testimony. Never giving up. No matter what. No matter what. Always holding to your testimony. Always saying and believing Jesus is Lord. Never denying that. That's the second way we defeat Satan. And that's how they defeated Satan. And then third, at the end of verse 11, they did not love their lives to death. The third way you defeat Satan is you must be willing to die. You must be willing to die. Because, you see, if I share the gospel in a Muslim country and I am captured by some radicals and they put a throat to my uh, a knife to my throat and said, deny Christ or die, if I'm afraid to die, guess what? I'll deny him. But if I'm willing to die, maintaining my testimony, they can kill me, but it says I overcome him. I beat him. I am the winner. How can I be the winner? I'm dead. Resurrection. How was Jesus the winner? When they punched his body with holes. Resurrection. How are we the winner? Resurrection. See, so we win even when we supposedly lose. That's the, uh, the contradiction. So Satan can never defeat you if you're willing to die rather than deny the faith. And in the past, there have been hundreds of thousands of people who have been martyred for their faith. Willing to die rather than to deny Christ. And in the future, the same thing's going to happen. It could happen even in this country. It's hard to think that, but it could actually happen. We don't know what's going on. So, the death of a believer in the faith is not a defeat of the And that's what John's calling his seven churches to do, and that's what he's calling us to do. Therefore, verse 12, Rejoice, O heavens! These are the believers that probably were in heaven. You who dwell in them who are martyred for the faith, don't worry, the victory is yours. So he tells the people in heaven, rejoice! But look what he says next. 
But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, those who, in a sense, give their allegiance to the kingdoms rather than the kingdom of God. For you, everything is woe. Why is it woe? Because Satan has come down to you, having great wrath. He's going all out to hold people in his kingdom and to destroy him. To destroy them if they start trying to profess Christ. Having great wrath. Why? Because he knows that he has a short time. See, Satan's time is limited. And he is going to wreak as much havoc as he can on planet Earth. And if you don't think it's happening, just look over to the Middle East right now. This world is in the biggest mess you've ever seen in your life. I'm spiritually, economically, militarily, in every possible way. And it's just like all hell has broken loose. And this is exactly what John says that we should expect. Now look, this is happening in our lifetime. But guess who John was writing to? Seven churches. He said, it's going to happen to you. And let me tell you, in the next 20 or 30 years after John writes, in fact, almost immediately after John writes, the emperor Domitian goes on a crazy wild streak of killing Christians, and then other emperors come along, and for the next 200 years, Christians are just martyred, 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 and they thought the end of the world was coming. So, what John is telling us is that, hey, yes, you're going to see this happen. Satan's on the loose. He's still on the prowl. He's going to do as much as he can do. He's going to try to get you to deny the faith. He's going to try to destroy people who are about ready to receive Christ. He's going to do whatever he can to mess up this world. And if you get yourself in a position where you have to deny or die, he's saying, die. Because just as Christ kept his faith and his testimony and God raised him from the dead, he'll do the same for you. For those of us who happen to be in a situation where that's not quite happening yet, we should rejoice because salvation is ours right now. The kingdom has come already in, in some ways, but you ain't seen nothing yet. One day Christ is going to come back and going to claim it all. And the kingdoms of this world will totally become the kingdoms of our Christ. And he will rule the nine. Right. Well, we'll pick up at verse 13. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Very important to the life of the churches in John's day and important to the life of the church today. Help us to take a passage like this that gives us the theological reasons why things are happening. A behind-the-scenes look <coughs> at why things are going on in our world the way they are so that we can understand these things. And when people say, well, what's going on? We'll have some sort of understanding. Maybe be able to help them understand as well. Lord, thank you for our class and every person who works hard to make sure that this hour uh, is put together. And we do pray for Pat Riley. Right now there is well, Satan is on the loose in that region of the world. Not only spiritually, but people are having to escape physically for their lives. We ask, Lord, that you help her to keep her testimony strong. Be a witness. Help others who are fearful. 
that they will have strength to persevere and uh, faith in, in this hour of need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.